Well, good morning. That was really weak. I think I say that every time, getting in a habit of that. I want to pray for us, and then we're going to jump into the book of Proverbs. Father, we thank you that you love us. Father, thank you that you call us into your family. Father, we ask that your spirit would empower us today to hear your words, to listen, to receive, to, um, to be called into a new way to live. Father, we pray that your spirit would empower myself, that you would give me your words to share, and that um, you would not just envelop this place, but that you would envelop this city, and that you would call more kids to your family, and that you would advance your kingdom, and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week, uh, my youngest daughter, Jocelyn, who was just up front here, she wanted to stay in because I was going to share this about her, but I said, no, you have to leave. Um, <laughs> anyway, she, uh, she gets very excited, and she brings to me uh, this, her very first speech that she has to write for fifth grade. She's graduating from this school on Friday, and everybody in the class writes a speech, and then the teacher picks who's going to actually share it on Friday. So I don't know if she's going to get this honor or not. But the very first line of her speech is this. A wise person once said, friends come and go like waves in the ocean, but true ones stick like an octopus on your face. (laughs) And then she goes on and she talks about all of her friends and the things of like how she's going to make new friends in middle school and blah, blah, blah. And I bring that up um, because it was kind of fitting because what I'm going to talk about today is is the subject of friendship. And I was like, oh, there's a quote right there. I should just use that. It's kind of funny. I don't really know what it means, but I used it. Anyway, um, so Proverbs actually has a lot to say about friendship. Um, and not just Proverbs, but you can actually trace this theme of friendship throughout the whole of Scripture. Um, as we kind of think about this idea of friendship, this subject of friendship, I want to ask a question. If you're new with us, you get to interact, you get to answer. Um, and so as you think about this subject of friendship, how would you define a friend? What are some things that you or other people may look for in a friend? Common interest. All right. What's that? Loyal. Loyalty. Okay, good. Trustworthy. Okay, someone that loves you unconditionally? Yeah, good. What else? Somebody who will tell you the truth. Okay? Mutual admiration. So you kind of like the same stuff. Probably you're in the same life stage, something like that. You like each other. Okay? You admire things about each other. You're pointing at your wife there, hopefully. (laughs) Put your arm around her. That's good. Yeah. Anything else? A good listener, okay? Somebody's got your back. You know you're going to get in a fight like somebody's going to got you, your, your wingman or wing girl, whatever that is. Yeah. Yeah. We got that one. Yeah. Someone who's wise. Okay. Yeah. Well, I looked this up in the Urban Dictionary because you can't use Webster's anymore. Um <laughs> And the Urban Dictionary says this. Friendship is when you love someone with every ounce of your being and genuinely want them to be happy, even if it means sacrificing something of yourself to make them happy. I'm not sure that's exactly correct, 
Um, but it is, I think, kind of defines a little bit of what our culture thinks about friendship. But I want to take a look at what God says about friendship. Um, and in Proverbs, if you have your Bibles, you can open to Proverbs chapter 27. I'm going to kind of bounce around um, today, but um, if you, we're going to start here. In Proverbs 27, verse 6, it's on the screen behind me. It says this, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse or plentiful are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Proverbs 18, 1 and 2 goes on and talks about why we actually need friends. And it says this, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinions. See, I think when we think about friends, we often think about people that we naturally like. People who are like us, people who like the same things we like. Um, we kind of hope for friends that will encourage us, that will comfort us, that will support us, that will often agree with us. But are we, I want to ask this question, are we actually praying for friends who are willing to wound us? Friends, godly friends who will wound us for our own good. Who are willing to boldly and graciously rip open and carefully our, our craft, crafted excuses and call us back to life and call us back to the truth of the gospel. Because I think the reality is that we, we live in a culture of such political correctness and such hypersensitivity to criticism that our friends with backbones are actually nearly extinct or most likely unwelcomed into lives. And I think that's not only true in our culture, but often true in the church. And the problem with that is that safe friends can actually be dangerous to our sin issues. See, our culture really cares nothing about your or my eternal good. In many ways, friends that, that can really cheer us on to destruction often. They can coddle our egos. They can tell you what you want to hear not what you actually need to hear. And this type of wisdom, I think, has permeated not just our friendships, but it's permeated so many other areas of life. It's permeated about how we think about work and how we think about marriage and how we parent our children. And it comes not just from people that you know personally that speak into your life, but I think this type of advice we often get from books or podcasts or other people that we would listen to. We often listen to what we like to hear. And I think we can often easily filter some of our cultural bias by listening to what we want to hear and we get even more moralistic solutions to the problem all of a sudden but missing the gospel. And Proverbs is saying that's not the type of friend that you actually want to seek. As we talk about this, please hear this. I'm not saying that you need to go find some friends that are like mobsters who are going to like take your knees out and break your fingers just to prove a point. What God is telling us is that your soul actually needs friends who are willing to risk wounding you, wounding your ego, wounding your feelings, wounding your pride in the moment for the long-term good of your soul. Friends who are willing to ask hard questions, who will tell you plainly, who will call us to repent, friends who are actually after your eternal um, soul over momentary feelings. 
Friends who, who call us back to God, who call us to live in His image and in His ways. You see, the truth is that whether you know Jesus today or you don't know Jesus today, um, each of us is actually designed for a deep, experienced, intimate friendship with God. It's what we all actually long for the most in the core of our being. To not just have some knowledge of God, but to be known and to experience it, to, to understand His profound love, to be accepted by the Heavenly Father. And when we're unsure of that love and acceptance, or we've rejected it, or we, we believe that it's beyond our understanding or, or really beyond our reach, we will all look for substitutes to fill the void of God's friendship. How do I know that? How do I know that we are actually designed for intimate friendship with God? Well, we know because if we go back and we look at the very first humans, Adam and Eve, and their fractured friendship. If you look back in Genesis chapter 3, you get this glimpse of what their relationship with God was and their relationship to each other was. And what we also see in Genesis chapter 3 is we see them hiding themselves in the garden in shame. Because, they, because of what they've just done. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, God comes and He gives them this question, and as He's walking in the garden, He says, Where are you? Where are you? That may be the, actually the saddest question in the Bible. Where are you? This is a very relational question. It's not so not different from like a heartbroken spouse who's, who's asking his wandering or relationally distant spouse, Where are you? Or maybe parents who, who are going after a child who has walked away. It's like, where are you? Or a friend who's who you were once really close with, but now are relationally have cooled off and are aloof. Where are you? Why is this distance between us now? You see, all of a sudden, Adam and Eve, uncharacteristically, no longer wanted to be with God. They spent their entire lives with him. It's all they knew. And all of a sudden, they no longer wanted to be with him. They had cheated on him and they rejected him. And all that they had once shared was gone. They had ceased to trust him. God was no longer safe to them. His presence really exposed their shame. And they were choosing separation. They were hiding. They were choosing to be separated. And as we know, really, separation was really inevitable because holiness can't abide with sin, and sin can't abide with holiness. And in the absence of God's friendship, then this, this ocean depth of love and purity and peace and the security that it provided, evil began to grow and take root in the souls of humans. As people's identities became increasingly unhinged from God, they became increasingly profoundly selfish and insecure and fearful and indulgent. And this gave rise to, to all manner of pride-fueled sins. People were trying to fill the void. The people became boastful and posturing and domineering. Humans became over, overly uh, selfly conscious. They started to pay respect out of fear of what others would think rather than out of truth. They developed this, this soul loneliness that no earthly relationship, human or non-human, could actually satisfy. This week on Thursday, um, we were taking God into school. Um, God goes into school in the back here. 
and we're building a house about four or five blocks from here. And Jocelyn and I and Godin were, there's one window that's not in. And we were kind of dancing in the window up there while we were waiting to go to school. And there's this woman that like is walking down the street on the other side of the street and she's pushing a stroller. It's got this little like thing over top of it. You can't really see him real well. And she stops and she points the stroller and she leans down and she like talks and she like points up and we're like dancing in the window. And then she hollers over. I'm like, what am I doing something wrong here? So she hollers over this. She said, my rabbit really had to stop and asked me to stop to see you guys dancing. And I was like, what in the world? Like a rabbit in a cart? Like I've seen dogs and that's bad, but like a rabbit in the cart? Um, But like... Don't get me wrong, we've got pets. We've got probably way too many pets. But the culture of the pet industry has gotten out of hand. And many people are actually filling and feeding their soul loneliness by looking for a relationship with something other than a human. Animals, or whatever it may be. People are trying over and over again to fill this void with humans or non-human things. Humans have also developed this this chronic sense that no matter what they achieve, it's never enough. They live in this relentless shame that while they're 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 driving to maintain an appearance of success in someone others somebody else's eyes. When humans get in powers of position, they've learned to manipulate friendships and use other people. Sometimes they do that for their own sensual powers, pleasures, and have enhanced their, just really enhanced their own self-perception or their significance um, and, or their, to make themselves glorious. We've seen this really come to the forefront in the Me Too movement right, where people are starting to say, no, this is happening to me. In other words, Romans 1 says this. It tells us that all humans are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, Malice, they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. That's a long list. That's what grows in human souls in the absence of God's friendship. And we bring all of those things into our friendships. And we often look for friends that fuel and affirm our desires for those things. That's the reality of our world, and that's the reality of our hearts. The good news is that God does not leave us there. In John chapter 1, he tells us that the Word became flesh. That God took on flesh in order to reconcile himself to us. That the world became flesh to heal the friendships that were fractured in the garden. The good news is that Jesus came to make us friends with God once again. God wants you and me to have a deep, experienced, intimate friendship with him. It's why he became a man. So he may make a way for us to once again walk with him in the cool of the day. In John chapter 15, we see Jesus call his followers friends. 
I'm not sure if you've ever thought this, but I always thought it would be cool if I could like go back in time and like walk with Jesus and like maybe be one of the disciples or like, I don't know if anybody's ever had that thought. Um, but I think as the more I thought about that, I don't think we would enjoy it as much as we might first think. You see, Jesus was not afraid to wound his friends for the healing of their souls. Jesus was not politically correct. He didn't walk in step with our cultural non-offensive niceties. He rebuked people. He rebuked his followers and the Pharisees alike. When we see him rebuke his, his sleeping disciples, we see him call Peter Satan. That's pretty bold. You see, the truth is, I don't think you and I would probably actually like to be there because I don't really like to get called on my crap. My guess is you don't either. We often don't want to be wounded. I'd say it's probably why we shy away from people that will actually wound us. Or why maybe sometimes we don't have any close friends. Or why, we, why in our DNA groups is the last thing we want to go to in a week. The reality is that Jesus would not have hesitated to say things that would offend you or me. He was without guile. He was without flattery. He called a spade a spade and a sin a sin. Always with love and always in truth. But here's the amazing thing, is that Jesus also was wounded for his friends. He didn't just wound them, he was wounded for them. He didn't just do the accountability drive-bys or the the DNA beatdown or whatever you want to call it. He didn't leave and then wait till the next week and then do it again. No, Jesus loved in both word and deed over and over and over again. Jesus loved his followers with comforting words and with encouraging words and with life-giving words and with hard words. And he backed up every one of those hard words with three piercing nails and the cutting thorns in his head, all for the everlasting good of his friends. He hurt his friends in order to help them. He wounded his friends in order to heal them. See, as we think about friendships, these are the types of friends that we actually need to pray for. These are the types of people that we actually need to look for and be for others. I said this earlier, but have you ever thought about praying for friends who would wound you in love? It may not be something that you actually feel like getting in your life. Like, I often don't want to pray for patience because then I know I'm going to have to, like, deal with something. Right? It may not feel like those types of friends are actually good gifts from God. But your soul and my soul needs those friends. And we need to ask for them. The reality is as well is that the truth is those friends who speak the truth in love also feel very uncomfortable about doing it. And so we need to ask them to do that. We need to ask them to actually speak into your life. Because they fear your disapproval and your rejection just the same way you fear it from other people. We need to invite them into your life. Invite wounds from others. To take initiative with people. To, to, to ask them to be honest with you about your weaknesses. Your blind spots. Um, and when they do speak up, actually thank them for it. 
about that? We actually thank people for that. Even when they don't do it perfectly. Knowing that because Christ was wounded for us, we can invite wounds into our lives now. Because He is our identity and my actions or what someone else says about me does not define who I truly am in Christ. So we get to invite people into that. I want to look at Psalm 145. uh, 141.5. It says this. It says, Let a righteous man strike me. It is kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. The psalmist is saying, invite that into your life. Just the same way you want to be built up and encouraged and and people to pat you on the back, we need to invite this into our lives as well. Proverbs 10.11 reminds us of this. It says, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of wicked conceals violence. Conceals violence. In other words, that when we share with one another in love and in grace and we point them back to Jesus, the words that we actually give them have the ability to be life-giving. Can I tell you, God loves life. It's why He created it in the first place. God is a lover of life. He promotes life. He's the giver of life. He's not about violence or about death. God is about life. And we have the ability to image God by the way that we use our mouths as fountains of life in other people's hearts. I'm not sure exactly where your hearts are at this moment. I've been kind of heavy, I think, maybe, but I think if we're honest, we probably desire friends. You may have some friends, but you probably desire friends who, who we can be confident in and that we can trust in that we can receive help from, that we can receive encouragement from. Someone who knows you who you are and loves you that way. Yet the problem is that that friendships, like all other things in this world, are fallen and broken. We have conflicts with one another. Right? Our closest friends we often fight with. We seek our own way. We betray one another. I'm sure at some level, some friend in your life has failed you and let you down. Many of you maybe have had friends that have betrayed your confidence. Perhaps you've had friends that that have, have turned their back on you and rejected you. I think we all know what it's like to have close friends, maybe from the past, that just, that just fade away through time and distance. You know the heartache. Some of you may know the heartache of losing a friend or a loved one through death. And I think as, as the brokenness of these things happen more and more in our lives, it can easily, we can grow into becoming cynical about friendship or distrusting or really cautious. We might find, I think sometimes we try to find friendships online. Or we go to social media because that's more appealing than flesh and blood. We find friendships with characters in books or movies that we say, oh, that's a friend that I, and, you, and we end up relating to them. 
What we do is we keep other relationships at a distance, never trusting enough to share what's really going on in your heart. Some of you may have given up on friendships completely altogether and prefer to just live life on your own. I think if we're honest, friendship is hard. And sometimes it's even hurtful. The good news is that Jesus has come to redeem and restore all of those things, including our relationships and including our friendship with one another. And if we're going to have true friends with one another and invite wounds from one another, you have to first find your perfect friend. Proverbs 17, 17 says this, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. You realize if you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, Jesus is your brother. You and I are co-heirs in the family of God. And the good news is that Jesus' love for us is unconditional. It's not based on who you are or what you've done or whether you've left him on the side of the road or what you've said to him or what you've done or any of those things. His love is not fickle. It's not temporary. He doesn't make promises that he fails to keep. He won't turn on you. He won't reject you. Jesus' love for you and for me is eternal. And it extends all the way back eternity past, before time even began. Before time began, Jesus was thinking about you sitting in this room and the desire for his relationship with you and me. And if we're going to live in wisdom and have friends who walk in wisdom and our lives are going to be rooted in friendships, they have to be rooted in Christ first. 1 John 4.19 reminds us of that. It says that you and I can only have love for one another Because God loved us first. And we need to begin by defining true friendships, not by our cultural norms or our cultural expectations, but by looking at the face of Jesus and being changed to love Him more and more and more. So in order, if we're going to have true friends and live as friends, our friendship has to be rooted in God first. He's the source of all friendships. I'd say the second thing is this. We need to follow Jesus into messy friendships. We need to follow Jesus into messy friendships. Because I think the truth is that we can be very fickle friends. We can distance ourselves from people and situations. If someone seems too immature or too demanding or too inconvenient, we bail. We find excuses, very legitimate ones, right? Of course they're legitimate. Legitimate excuses to bail, to distance ourselves from these kinds of friends. But yet, if we look at Jesus' life, Jesus, the perfect, holy Son of God, he went and hung out among wicked sinners who were extremely mature, extremely difficult, and even dangerous. They did crucify him, right? Jesus didn't condone their sin, but he didn't run from them either. Instead, he entered into their messiness of sinners as a faithful friend, as a friend who would love at all times, no matter what they did or what they said to him. 
We need to be friends and look for friends who actually move towards pain, move towards suffering, and the hardship of love, not away from it in selfish fear. We need to learn to see every friendship through the work of Christ on your and my behalf. To see that at the cross, there's actually more than enough grace to cover the multitude of sins committed to you, by you, or against you. You see, at the cross, the depth of suffering our perfect brother was willing to endure for you and for me. And we need to remember that that true friend moves closer when times get harder. Who doesn't leave or forsake a friend, even if that trial lasts for a lifetime. When we learn to live this way, it will actually help us be authentic with one another. When you have that type of friend or when you, when you are offered that type of friendship to people, authenticity comes from that. We can then admit our weaknesses. We can take off the mask of, I'm doing okay. We don't need to clean ourselves up then. We don't have to run from the circumstances around us. We simply need Jesus to belong. And instead of running from others when things get hard, we can be eager to lean in with brothers and sisters around us, eager to bear one another's burdens, regardless of how heavy or hurtful they may become. Because the reality is, no one is okay by themselves. No one is okay by themselves. It's not how we were created to live. We were created for relationships. And we need, I wouldn't say blood-bought friends, brothers and sisters who are born for adversity. Our friendship has to be rooted in God. We have to follow Jesus into messy friendships. And this final thing, we need to walk in forgiveness. Walk in forgiveness. Friends hurt friends. It's inevitable. Every friend is a sinner. And sinners are going to sin against one another. When you take two broken people and you put them together, you just have more brokenness. It's going to happen eventually, intentionally or unintentionally. In either way, it's always hard to recover from the pain inflicted by a friend. Pain of sin can quickly overshadow years of life, years of love, years of memories. Good times fade to the background when friendship is betrayed. Investment is all of a sudden down the drain. Our vulnerability is then restrained, our trust is shattered, and love is often questioned. And yet, Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. But what if, what if you're the one that's sinned against, and you're hurt because of unkind words, or betrayal, or manipulation by a person that you considered a friend? How do you address that with your friend? How do you move past the pain towards reconciliation? And I want to share a proverb with you, but, but as I share this, please hear that this requires actually patience, maturity, and wisdom. It's not something that we're probably used to hearing. Proverbs 19.11 says this, It is one's glory or beauty to overlook an offense. One's glory or beauty to overlook offense. I said this earlier, but we live in 
certain culture that is so quickly offended. We're so easily offended and often not just offended ourselves, but we unneededly take up offenses for others that cause strife and actually may lead you into sinning against someone else. And this is true inside and outside the church. For people that are easily offended, I want to say that's not walking wisely. What this Proverbs is not saying is that we just brush everything under the rug, that we just forgive and forget and live with the pain in silence. Rather, what this Proverbs is saying is, is check your heart and your response to see if the offense may actually be self-righteous or some personal preference. It's something that, that's not actually a sin. To overlook an offense means to actually live in a state of grace rather than in a state of annoyance. To give a loving response to a seemingly offensive thing. And when we do that, it's actually an opportunity to disciple others in the image of Jesus. It's a, it's a dying to self. It's a showing constraint. It's turning the hurt over to Jesus who I can say most identifies with our pain and who actually meets you and me in our time of need. And so we need to offer that. I'd say as well, there, there may be actually legitimate times and occasions when we need to address a hurt. There are legitimate offenses that need to be addressed. And we're actually called to attempt to right those wrongs. Scripture talks about uh, that to, to not just not just to lash out or to fight out, fight back with people. Our goal must always be reconciliation and forgiveness born from love when we're in relationship with other people. That's what it's called a biblical rebuke. In Luke seventeen, three and four, Jesus teaches on this, and this is how he tells his friends to live. Look what he says. If a brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, repents Forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. I think this idea or this word rebuke, we often misunderstand. To rebuke is not, is not to just go tell them something. Just tell them how they were wrong or how they offended you. A biblical rebuke means to actually reason, to discuss with. As we think about that, just to clarify, discussion is not one-sided. It's an interaction that requires explaining, that requires listening. Listening not to defend yourself, but actually listening to understand. We rebuke someone, we, we rebuke, we reason, we listen to discuss with the spirit of gentleness and with the goal of offering forgiveness and repentance. That's a very different approach than what we think of and what our culture tells us of how we go an offense, how we address an offense. You need to just go tell them. You need to tell them how you're feeling. You tell them how you got hurt. How they can't do that to you. How they can't be a part of your life anymore. Can I honestly say, when we do that, it makes us the center of offense. 
makes us the center, when Jesus is actually the most offended party. See, if we look further into Jesus' teaching, he tells us that even after we address the offense and someone gets forgiven for it, they may actually hurt you again. And we need to be ready to forgive them every time. See, forgiveness means, it doesn't just mean that you forget it. Forgiveness means that you start with a clean slate. That you're actually choosing not to bring that offense up again. It's not forgetting about it. Jesus is not absent-minded about our sin. Jesus actually actively chooses not to hold it against you and me anymore. We start with a clean slate from the place of friendship and relationship, not from the place of continual hurt. When you offer forgiveness to others, to your friends, to your spouse, to your kids, to your co-workers, do you offer that kind of forgiveness? If you don't, you'll never be able to overlook minor offenses. And minor offenses will always be met with the fury of past hurts and will continue to keep records of wrong, even though we have forgiven them. The truth is that this type of forgiveness is impossible if we forget about Jesus. And the fact that that he has forgiven our offenses even before you and I saw our need to be forgiven. And he does it over and over and over again. That's why I said we have to go to that friendship first. I want to encourage you this morning to seek restoration in relationships. If you've been hurt by a friend, I want to encourage you to pour your heart out to Jesus in prayer first. Ask Him for wisdom. Ask Him for forgiveness. Ask Him to reconcile you first. And then go offer that to someone else. Pray and ask God to search your own wounded heart, to dig in, to ask, what was I thinking when I was offended? Was I hurt because of my sin was exposed? Was I oversensitive to something that was said? Was I tired? Was I hungry? I don't know, what was, is there a pattern from my friend, or is this really just a first-time offense? Pray and ask for the grace to think about what is true and what is honorable and what is just and what is pure and what is lovely and what is excellent and what is praiseworthy in your friend. Pray for discernment to see if God wants you to to overlook the offense or if you should address it. And if 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 you need to address it, then pray that you would be honest and gracious with your friend about the way that you were hurt. And that your friend would actually respond with humility. And that you would listen. And that you would have an open heart with them. And that you would actually be willing to offer true forgiveness. Forgiveness the way that Scripture actually defines it. And that regardless of the outcome, you can be comforted in this. That Jesus is the friend that we never had. 
the friend that we never deserved and the friend that we all need. He's our perfect friend and he sent Spirit to fill us up, not merely to give you and I power so we can work and do through his ministry throughout the, the world, but to actually experience the friendship of God to the extent that we can't stop talking about him with other people. I don't know if you ever noticed, but you usually talk about your friends when you're out. That the Spirit would actually give us that deep love for him, that that would overflow and play into every relationship in our lives. I want to say too, pray and thank God for friends who will actually wound us in order to point us back to the true friendship that only He can give. Our Father, we thank You that You did not leave us in the state of brokenness, but that You actually came, that You took on flesh, that You walked this planet so that the broken relationship that we caused by our own pride and selfishness could be mended. That you offered forgiveness and you made a way for forgiveness even when we were your complete enemies. Father, I pray that we would be a people that image you well in this area of life. That we would walk wisely in our friendships and offer true friendships and true forgiveness to people the way that you do. Father, we know that this is not an easy thing. It may even sound heavy to our hearts. Father, we ask that your Spirit would empower us, that you would not just call us to live these ways, but that you would give us the power to walk in them. Father, pray that we be a people that images you well in this, this city in these ways. And that people would not just look for community or friendship with us, but that they would find friendship with you. Father, we thank you for your great gift. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.